So a number of questions have been left here in the bowl. Similar and dissimilar questions. And important to um, understand from the beginning that when somebody writes a, a, a question those of us who, in this case, either read or listen, don't have access to all the information and the background coming from the question. So the question is rather taken initially on base <coughs> value. So in that respect, sometimes we may not respond fully and adequately enough to the question. And the other uh, two aspect two is that with both question and response, both are multi-faced. And so, again, we're just touching on some aspect of the, of the question there. And if something isn't clear in responding to the question, then please find some time to um, ask us, say, in a small group or in another situation. Incidentally, it's not the first time, it's happened more than once, a couple of times or more. In previous um, years here, someone has said something like, well, Christopher, the only thing I really remember about your retreat is um, um, how good the food is and um, <laughs> how much I enjoyed the question and answers. <laughs> no comment. Um, why do we not use the method of counting the breaths in and out, at least at the start of the retreat? Would this not make it easier to get into, especially for beginners? Um, incidentally, in just reading through the questions in the last few minutes, I noticed the word easier in there three or four times. S certainly the counting <laughs> method is a uh, useful and um, helpful way and one of the ways which is done and one can explore is by engaging in some counting say on the outgoing breath so that one breathes in and then out breath one <coughs> next out breath two next out breath three and say up to uh, ten or twenty and then beginning again with any introduction of a concept, like one, two, three, what can take place is that one is just repeating in a conditioned way the concept and not actually in touch with the experience. Mine has this capacity just to repeat without direct contact. So if a person, if you use a counting method, then I would say it's just to be used um, temporarily and as early as possible to be dropped so that the primary event that's going on is just experiencing breathing in, just experiencing breathing out and being in touch with that bare experience. And in response to the second part, certainly one does... Um, 
look for lots of different ways in a situation like we have here to make it easier and it can be one of the primary uh, interests of the day how can I make this easier for myself and when it's forgetting you know that we're not trying to make it easier you know if we wanted to make it easier <laughs> then we start at nine o'clock <laughs> with breakfast <laughs> And we have a different kind of day. <laughs> so the way of the situation here is to be in touch with what is actually happening. And to see the mind which devises all sorts of ways and means to make it that much easier for ourselves. Look within. The only true teacher one can find is one's own mind and body. Is this what the Buddha taught? And if so, it seems, looking to an external object will lead the mind away from its true nature. Well, um, I can't say, because I don't have that... Uh, authority because I wasn't around um, two and a half thousand years ago and and if I was I've forgotten <laughs> um, but about what the Buddha taught but let's let's say as the person points out here that in looking within we're looking at the bare actuality of mind body and when using the concept mind here uh, it refers to the vast repertoire and range of human experience feelings, emotions, thoughts, plans, daydreams concentrated mind, dull mind, clear mind, insightful mind or whatever so the whole range of uh, that experience and we put under the general label mind or sometimes heart and mind and one might say that in that observation and looking, we're just looking very much at the bare actuality. Minimal amount of uh, conceptualizing and interpretation so that the raw experience is what stands out for us. And one isn't drawing any conclusions in saying just mind and body is, um, how's the person describe here, uh, is one's true nature and not to say something other and posit something other as one's true nature. So not introducing in a way these kind of charged concepts about what is true nature or true reality but rather at present just a simple bare atten attention to what is occurring, let's see what's unfolds in that occurring. Is it possible to maintain awareness during sleep and dream states. How to do this? Well, sometimes one reads about these um, yogi books, yoga books. Um, and 
I would uh, put it like, like this. Uh, at times in meditation, in, uh, there's um, certain changes which take place, altered states of consciousness, changes in the consciousness. And people r report from ex experience, and I can uh, report from mine, that one can take sleep and what occurs in the sleep actually shows itself. And, yet, and there's a, uh, it's an un uh, extraordinary phenomena of simultaneous the being asleep in the accepted sense of the word and simultaneously there's an, a, a consciousness which has some degree of um, alertness going, uh, going on with it as well. I don't say this is um, desirable in any way, but it's just one of the fluctuations or changes of consciousness. In another way, as people report, one can sit and be with the breathing and simultaneously thoughts can be passing through while one is in contact with the breathing. You know, the capacity of consciousness is really quite remarkable. And it's not unusual in, in retreat situations that the dream life is remarkably intense and some very strong, powerful dreams take place as consciousness, uh, rather the content, what we might call unconscious material or whatever, starts just flowing through during the night hours. And again, one isn't trying to psychoanalyze oneself and say, well, this means that and this means something else, but just part of the process that's going on in uh, these situations. I would suggest moving the whole evening one half hour so that we could get a hot drink at nine and so go to bed earlier. <laughs> this is one of the easier notes. <laughs> I feel too tired in the evening. Um, I appreciate that the, um, the day is... Uh, is rather long and those of you who ever been unfortunate enough to work in a regular job um, <laughs> um, will know that generally speaking working hours are something like um, nine till five and here it's there's a change it's from five till nine thirty <laughs> <laughs> seven days a week and well, so people experience um, the la as I think as Fred was pointing out yesterday uh, um, ev evening that one gets to the last um, um, twenty minutes, half hour of the day, and the last thing on one's mind is loving kindness for mosquitoes. <laughs> and and yet, if one stays with it, and this, as it were, stretching and extending of ourselves as the days go by, one finds remarkably that. Uh, one can um, stay quite well and alert and energized right through till 9.30 and 10 and 10.30 and uh, um, midnight and quite regularly now on the uh, retreats over the last year one evening on the retreat we've been having very late night sometimes all night sessions and we'll see how the energy is uh, flowing during this retreat to see whether we have a very late uh, night and 
go and hang out at the tree over there for a while or something. <coughs> so be patient. And sometimes with the last period of the day, I say that last half hour, 45 minutes, when the attraction for the horizontal posture is so overwhelming, that uh, if one can just keep a little of the resources for that last period of time. What do you suggest for one who continues to reject walking meditation to the extent that it becomes quite unbearable? Um, could buy a rickshaw. <laughs> <laughs> you see, um, how about dropping the concept meditation? I, I do feel sometimes this concept meditation is, uh, is um, so overloaded in its uh, usage that the danger is in the way that we think about meditation is that we somehow put it into a specialized category separate from other activities. And then, so if one was to write, what do you suggest for one who continues to reject walking <laughs> to the extent that it becomes quite unbearable? <laughs> I'd say you've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say is just slow walking just slow mindful walking that unbearable and what, what is perhaps occurring there I don't think personally that slow walking is in itself unbearable but some reaction and rejection takes place around it and we are so used in the past to walking very quickly with one primary idea in our mind to reach a destination. Walking is purely regarded as a means for an end to get some place, some destination. And so we frequently space out and we just walk to get to the end. And the change of consciousness, the change of heart here is that walking itself is a valuable human experience. Just walking itself, not to go anywhere with it. Rather like if you were, had um, um, an injury, a leg injury, as some of you may have had, and you, you begin to take your first steps. You're, you're not interested in getting anywhere. Just, just the experience of step-by-step -step activity. And in that there's a, a receptivity, a, a sensitivity, an interest, a care that just walking for walking. And it's that kind of heartfelt, caring, receptive experience we want to discover. We want to allow ourselves to discover when we're doing something so ordinary as just reducing the speed of walking and just slow, mindful walking. And the sense of that, it, um, and the, 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 the texture, the, the quality of that, is if we get a sense of all of this, one of the important things which uh, pointed out spiritually and many times by the Buddha, is that the appreciation of the ordinary means that what goes with it is much less demands, pressure, expectations on the world around us as it were, the, the experience of contact and uh, 
depth and communication and uh, joy and respect and reverence for life, we have all of that immediately. It's all here wherever we actually are. And if we can get a sense for that quality of experience, our relationship to life is going to be very rich and diverse. And I know, in the walking one has to go through lots of stuff and tensions and resistance and rejections and it feels unbearable and what's the use of doing this? Of course, it's all because it's such a contrast to the old motivations and patterns associated with walking. There are a few questions about samadhi. What is the connection between samadhi and mindfulness? So if I um, use this, this concept samadhi is a um, both Pali, that's the language the Buddha is reputed to have spoken in, and Sanskrit. And in Buddhism and in Hinduism, it frequently has um, different usage. So sometimes one hears, say, in Hinduism, of the, when the guru uh, dies, or as they like to put it, passes on, um, or doesn't pass on, um, he goes into, or she goes into, Maha Samadhi. And this would be equated with um, God, or truth, or eternity, or whatever. And in Buddhism, uh, the, the Buddha's an interesting characteristic here. The Buddha has frequently taken these kind of concepts and then given them another kind of meaning. And th this samadhi refers to meditation and a meditation which has certain kind of characteristics to it. And the characteristics of samadhi in meditation or in mindfulness are a sense of uh, inner well-being, um, a certain quality or depth of calmness, feeling very steady, present, perhaps um, quite a quiet joy or contentment in the moment. Let me say that when this is <coughs> present in sitting or in walking or in any other quiet activity you're engaged in, we say, this is samadhi. In other Buddhist, that's how I would use it personally. In other Buddhist traditions, samadhi is directly equated with concentration. Samadhi is spelled S-A-M-A-D-H-I. And, and then to have samadhi means that you have the capacity to concentrate on a particular spot, like say the tip of the nose or the abdomen, when you can really concentrate using effort and um, uh, will and determination and so forth, then you have samadhi. So again, within traditions as well, there's differences of use. <coughs> and I would say, with mindfulness, mindfulness is the simple, bare attention to what is happening. Just simply being mindful of what is occurring. In the moments of, of being mindful of what is occurring, we call this mindfulness. Sometimes, with the mindfulness, there is samadhi, as I just described it. Calm, steadiness, stillness, and one is mindful of samadhi. Sometimes there is mindfulness, and there isn't samadhi. There's confusion, or there's activity, there's 
pain, there's restlessness, and one is mindful of that. So sometimes mindfulness with samadhi, sometimes without. If you have some engagements in Tibetan Buddhism, can you read your prayers and say the mantras morning and evening? Um, some people uh, of you have uh, various commitments, and this generally applies to Tibetan tradition, where the commitments are to, as the person points out, say prayers, puja, um, mantras and so forth. And if you have that, those commitments, then do feel free, please, to observe them. And my request with regard to that is that you, if you do them in the place where you rest, where you um, sleep, that uh, you, the time which you give to that is just the time for that. And the other condition is that whatever the form of commitment that you have, that it's done silently and whether it's, uh, uh, whatever the expression is, and I also ask, in that respect, not to bring malas and um, um, here into the meditation room, and if your commitment means mala, again, to use that in your room where you stay. So that within the context there's space and freedom to maintain one's commitments, and there's also recognition of the general thread and theme here. Meditators of some schools or persuasions focus on the I am rather than the bre breath or wanderings of the mind as we do. How does that practice relate to ours? Um, with all such uh, questions, how does this relate to that? Um, I do feel it's important here that one finds out immediately and directly through one's own experience. Um, focusing on I am, which is uh, a way primarily born out of um, Vedanta. Vedanta, V-E-D-A-N-T-A, is um, probably the tradition in, uh, in India which comes most akin to um, this kind of uh, work. And in the Vedanta tradition, the emphasis is on um, listening, and uh, inquiry. And inquiry sometimes takes the form of the teacher questioning the uh, student, so to speak. And one of the emphasis is just focusing on I am. Again, again very useful, very um, grounding, and so forth. And with any kind of practice, and this one here is no, no different, there's always value and there's always things to be watchful for. And one of the great dangers in any kind of work which is insightful and uh, towards realization is that one can get self-preoccupied. And so there are many counter, in this um, kind of work, there are many counterbalances to that. The connectedness with others and with life, reverence for, for all forms of uh, existence, service to others, 
the interdependence that human beings have with all which is around us. Those kind of themes are constantly being generated in the spiritual communications so that one doesn't focus on I am or what I have or what I've achieved or what I've realized or, what, or whatever in a way which is exclusive. And the Mahayana tradition, to its everlasting uh, credit, constantly reminds us about our relationship to the world and the centrality of compassion in spiritual work. Is meditation and slow necessarily synonymous? Why is such an emphasis placed on stillness and slowness? Um, well, they're, um, they're not um, synonymous. And um, I think if they were, a tortoise would be probably nearer enlightenment than the rest of us. So, in being slow, it's not really anything more than a useful tool. And it's a, a useful tool within a situation. In other words, you know, come the end of the retreat, and a hundred odd people were to start walking very, very slowly to Shivanath's chai shop, it would only confirm all the worst fears that Indians have about us. <laughs> I remember years ago we were in, um, um, in, in Goa and we um, gave a re retreat there. I don't know what the scene is like in Goa, but certainly in the mid-70s it was, uh, well, it was rather tragic, really. And... Um, there were people on that retreat, I remember, who only the night before were fixing, were shooting up smack the night before the retreat. Such a start. And the retreat was held in a rather large house and, um, which we had um, uh, rented. And the fence around it wasn't too high. And there were other houses very nearby. We have a certain kind of isolation, privacy, in here at the back of the Thai temple. And I must say the ascetics and the layout here is quite, uh, quite good. And, but there it wasn't quite like that. So every time there was the walking meditation, there were crowds <laughs> of Goans. And they would come, it was the, you know, the major feature of life in Goa. <laughs> and they'd stand six deep <laughs> for these 45 minute periods, just watching this slow, you know, I think they had thought they'd seen it all in Goa <laughs> and, until we came. Anyway, so the, the walking slowly um, is uh, simply a tool. And I mean, to use a simple analogy, if one is going by somewhere flash right in, a, in a, a car, you do see, but not so much if one's going slowly, traveling by foot or by bicycle. And, and in the same way, it's just connecting very slowly with what we're doing so we begin to feel the variety and the spectrum of experience that takes place each time the body moves from one position to another. And I remember a number of the teachers in uh, places like Thailand, Rajan Damodaro, who uh, is my old Vipassana teacher, 
and he would come into the uh, meditation hall and would give a very ample, um, well not full, but ample demonstration of going to the toilet. And from the time that one opens the door and uh, walk in, and you just go through the whole ritual, one of life's most valuable rituals, <laughs> extremely liberating. <laughs> <laughs> and and we just go through and we say, that's there it is. There's life. There's practice. There's the work. There's our liberation. So it, it's just that sense. And in the Zen tradition, as we know, with many areas, flowers arra arrangement and the um, tea ceremony and working in the kitchen or whatever, all comes into the field of being an extraordinary and freeing experience when we approach it in that spirit. And so we, we are just taking the ordinary, just sitting here, being together, breathing, just sitting and walking, just taking some food, just taking, in a way, the very ordinary events of life and saying, this most ordinary thing to do is just to sit and be here is really worthy of the fullness of attention. What about mosquitoes? <laughs> and what about mosquitoes? Well, one of the... Um, <laughs> Um, strong emphasis is in uh, be, being here is the cultivation, is the application, let us say, of non-violence to as many situations as possible. <laughs> and probably the nearest we get to being violent here <laughs> is with regard to the mosquitoes, who probably and I just can't believe their good fortune. <laughs> the sunset comes and they start to buzz around in their blood hunt. And then there those whose karma has reached its ultimate arrive in here with... <laughs> 110 people now, <laughs> sitting still. <laughs> and the very cream of the milk is that some have got bald heads to go. <laughs> it's Christmas for mosquitoes. <laughs> so, in, in that, we, perhaps we could start as we have done, um, perhaps the managers will get us a little bit more mosquito cream or repellent or whatever, <coughs> and we, if one wishes, may, one may uh, use that. And just to see, if we, in that, if we can possibly develop a reasonable relationship with these creatures, not in order to um, perpetuate their life, just to perpetuate their life, but rather for us as part of being here on earth to have a relationship to see what it touches in us when these mosquitoes are 
buzzing around in, in our ear. And to somehow to see if we can, the kind of negativity, the aversion, the fear, the agitation that comes with that. And see if that can be used as an opportunity to work with that. The mosquitoes will also be grateful. Krishnamurti, most of you know um, Krishnamurti, once said that too much meditation just makes one dull and stupid. <laughs> He's so encouraging, isn't he? <laughs> Um, well, I don't know how to res respond to this. Um, <laughs> at, um, I have a, a friend who's, who was teaching at a Krishnamurti school, this is Brockwood Park School in uh, England, for some 15 years. And he did something rather um, um, heretical in the Krishnamurti school of things. What he did was, he took, he's listened to Krishnamurti many times, and wherever Krishnamurti has um, spoke of the value of meditation in its formal sense, which wasn't too often, um, he took that little piece out, those, that little, those few sentences out of that cassette, so to speak, and then he, and he put them all together on one cassette. <laughs> so I've got at home a cassette of Krishnamurti extolling the great virtues and merits of meditation. And I had a meeting with um, Krishnamurti, I had actually a, a few um, meetings with him, and he's certainly critical of formal meditation. There's no way one can fudge it as much as I'd like to. And yet one's I think has to view it from what's your experience. <coughs> See, it's hopeless, isn't it? If, if you and I are just, even though we may have enormous affection for people like uh, Krishnamurti, and, and some of us have very long-standing love and respect for him, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to say, okay, JK, <laughs> you know, right, forget it, I'll just go on living dully, dully and stupidly without meditation? <laughs> or are we going to say to ourselves, okay, JK, that's your view and uh, opinion. I want to ex first experience and to see whether after a few days I am really dull and stupid. <laughs> and if you are after spending a few days here, that's the, the ultimate fruits of sitting and walking, then don't meditate. Simple, isn't it? You find out from your experience, if it's useful, wonderful. Some of us, I can speak from my experience, some 20 years now, exposure to this, and it's, there's still a, um, a freshness and a joy with meditation and sitting and being present and all of that which as unlike the flower, never fades. But that's my experience, and your experience may be different, and meditation or awareness here 
means listening to what one has experienced. Some of the questions a little bit... Um, Christopher, is there life beyond Vipassana? <laughs> and then he goes, ha ha, but it's a sincere inquiry. <laughs> Stressing different words brings up all those questions which come to me in moments when I feel my stomach sinking and the ground giving way under me. Um, <laughs> firstly, um, Vipassana simply means um, in English, it means insight. It's in its spirit. Really, it's got nothing in itself to do with formal meditation. The word we has got does get used, vipassana meditation. <coughs> but wherever you and I experience some insight into life, into ourself, into a situation, which does in some way noticeably bring about some change within us. We would say, in that moment, that is vipassana. In that moment, that is insight. It can occur within the meditation room, outdoors, when eating, in any situation, in retreat or out of retreat. And what we, <coughs> should we say, are engaged in here, which might be, re might be referred to as the... Uh, almost the original group therapy, we might say like that, is establishing together suitable social environmental conditions which make it conducive for insight. You know, quite often when our mind is so busy and preoccupied and doing this and doing that, we don't have time to stop and to look a little bit more carefully and come to some fresh learning and fresh understanding. So, we are all supporting each other in the conditions which contribute to vipassana, which contribute to learning, to inquiry, to seeing that little bit more clearly. And, and therefore we might say the retreat emphasizes mindfulness and awareness, it emphasizes form and method and technique, it sees where that's relevant, where that isn't relevant, it also emphasizes um, listening and attentiveness and connectedness and silence. So there are many threads being interwoven within the situation here. Possibly out of that some vipassana will be present. We'll see and learn afresh. Yes, this is... Person asks, is there an ultimate reality? These questions are always, if yes, what is it? <laughs> Through the retreat, these questions are um, reg regularly uh, occur in um, different forms. Now, honestly, what am I going to say? In terms of this, that's going to make a scrap of difference to anybody's life. So rather than let us think along these lines, 
in which it applies some separation. Let's find out what's the reality that's occurring now. What's the present experience which is occurring? Let's see and connect with that. Let's see and connect with that so directly and so immediately. Let's see whether this ordinary reality and ultimate reality, whatever, are separate from each other, are distinguishable from each other. So let, 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 let's keep it very, very simple. Let's really connect in that and let's, dis let's see what's present there for us. And because if one starts saying, if I start saying to you, oh, go for it, you know, go for this ultimate reality and you, you can have this and you can have it now, etc., etc. It just easily creates a separation and some, in a way, undermining of oneself in countless ways and making something other. And this something otherness misses the whole point. Misses it. And so with any of these areas like as truth, God, ultimate reality, transcendent experience, liberation, the divine, enlightenment, all this vast repertoire of concepts, which in their social time, I would say, certainly were useful and appropriate and applicable, but they have gained, to me, they've gained a kind of use which they alienate human beings from life. <coughs> they create a separation, they create a distinction away from life. And I'm not sure if that's Dharma teachings, spiritual teachings. So if we keep faith, keep trust with exploring and experiencing into the present, perhaps, perhaps, all those kind of concepts will the revelation will be revealed to us immediately here and now. There's nothing special whatsoever about it. All right, enough for to today. And again, in about um, three days' time, we'll have uh, more question-answer um, periods. And please feel free to uh, write a note there and leave it in the bowl for us. And then during today, in the guided meditation today, begin to expand out the field of attention a little bit further from the breathing to connecting um, with the body. And again, to see that in, in that, with, with the life of the body, that how the mind easily has its impact on the body. So if we, if we can allow ourselves just to settle into being present, settle into the different kind of pains and discomforts that come and just see that's what's happening, that's the sensation, that's the experience, what's going on in the present. Let's see if we can just integrate ourselves with that, let's see if we can just be with that. And if it's too stressful, too painful, too much, then ha having that human freedom to say, okay, right now I need to make some change in the posture. And not viewing that as failure, not seeing so much in terms of, oh, that was a good sitting because I didn't move, and that was a bad sitting because I moved. Not, not bringing those kind of labels onto ourselves. And if we do, just to be aware, ah, oh, I'm putting this label on this experience, good, 
bad success, failure. This is, oh, this is what's happening now. This is what's occurring now. All right. Thank you. Well, as some of you can see, there's a considerable number of um, questions there. <coughs> and it would be a gargantuan task to attempt to answer all of them. So mm. my apologies if I just re go through a um, percentage of them. I'll just, in just a fair play, I'll spread them out here in front of me so that um, the last shan't necessarily be the first. What did the Buddha actually realize under the Bodhi tree? <coughs> you said it last night, but it was not clear to me. Is the deathless God? <coughs> Firstly and self-evidently, um, um, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> and I'm rather reminded of um, one of the Rinpoches who came to have lunch with me the other day. And who was commenting, he said, um, as a Rinpoche, um, what was it, Tuku, I'm expected to remember all my past lives. And he said, I can't even remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> and this I would call a liberating awareness. <laughs> and this I suspect is also what the Buddha realized under the tree. And that this liberating awareness doesn't know death, doesn't know an end. There's a request for people who are sitting late to return to their beds. Um, quietly, so as not to disturb those who are in other realms. <laughs> <coughs> what are your thoughts on the burning of incense during the course of one's meditation? Well, um, I like incense at home, incidentally but I tend to regard incense as a pleasant pollutant. Doesn't making heroes out of martyrs undermine the value of our own lives? Martyrs appear to be very attached to their cause, determined to push for change, whatever the personal cost. Is this a balanced model for us? 
spending 14 years behind bars to put a few dents in a warhead seems like a waste. <coughs> I agree that um, martyrs and can what is a martyr? Martyr? Martyr. We won't mention names. <laughs> do, do people know the word martyr? Um, and I agree, um, martyrs can be very attached to their cause and that is always one of the dangers uh, with that. The people that I referred to yesterday evening on the talk of the uh, Bodhisattva way are not martyrs and I specifically spoke about people who are personal friends of mine and uh, therefore know them uh, reasonably well through retreats and uh, out of retreats. And the person that says, um, is this a balanced model for us? And as um, Norman, in fact, pointed out to me last night, the people that I uh, referred to were people who involved in the social political sphere, which is one vehicle for the uh, expression of concern, the expression of compassion. And there are, of course, many other vehicles in personal life, in spiritual, in religious life, in various other fields of life, of which there are countless forms, and, and in some cases through various institutions and uh, means. And all, all of these can be ways and means in which you and I have access to expressing this sustained concern for the welfare of people and planet. Now the person says, spending 14 years, actually it's, not, it's 18 years, behind bars to put a few dents in a warhead seems like a waste. Um, I would and ask the question there of Steve, just take some examples of Steve Biko speaking in South Africa about the injustice, the uh, wretched racist system there and it cost him his life. Was that a waste? Was um, Luther King speaking in America with all the ongoing threats that if he continued it would destroy his life? Was that a waste? But a quite number of people who are willing to walk out on the streets knowing that they face arrest, torture, imprisonment and death. Is that a waste? Some of us here are members of Amnesty International and each month we receive a newsletter of the kind of imprisonment and injustices which are taking place in our own society which is, speaks so arrogantly of democracy and justice and practices lack of democracy and lack of justice. And with the particular person, the mother in fact, who's there in prison for 18 years, she's even asked people not to keep campaigning on her behalf. She said that is what the, the, the system that is 
given me is this 18-year sentence, and she's encouraging people to keep their campaign going for utter disarmament. And she's corresponded with the judge who gave her this sentence. And, she, and asked the judge just to look at himself and why he felt the need to have to, to do this. So I would say, personally, it is not a waste at all, not one minute of it. What means Dharma? D-H-A-R-M-A. Um, dharma is the Sanskrit word, and ha embraces more than one um, meaning. But generally speaking, we might say that Dharma is the teachings which deal with the realities of life in all of its um, diversity and is <coughs> generally associated with coming primarily out of the Buddhist tradition. And the Dharma which deals with the, uh, uh, the realities of life embraces both um, an ethical foundation for our existence the necessary insights into the psychological and emotional processes, um, an understanding of the human being's relationship to planet, um, um, a profound philosophy of life which can be not as theory but actually Im an implemented philosophy, a practical ongoing philosophy of life which expresses through the spiritual, ethical, emotional, psychological, physical in insights with the world, um, a liberating understanding, a liberating appreciation <coughs> of participating in life. <coughs> Form is emptiness. This is, so I'm just a couple of questions here, obviously, on the talks. Um, I don't understand. Something's missing in my head. Wonderful. Um, each time I think about it, nothing comes to light. Um, <laughs> thought is emptiness, isn't it ever? When we're speaking of uh, um, emptiness, um, the... Um, Sanskrit word for this is sunyata. It's a word which is um, used frequently in the Buddhist tradition and which um, needs to be defined uh, a little bit. When speaking of emptiness, as a working or practical definition is that nothing, nothing has an independent, separate self-existence. Nothing exists by itself. All and there, and therefore, in the dynamics of life, and the way that the mind moves, which also doesn't have any self-existence, you can't can't have the mind without the world. One can't have mind without body, without all the other interdependent factors. And what and what occurs, and the talk just touched a little on this theme, was that in the movement of the mind, which in that very speaking right now has isolated it from all else as a particular phenomena. 
in the movement of the mind, the way that it moves is such that it makes something as though it was separate, individual, separate, unique, different, special, and isolates it in, through the movement. And this gives it the appearance of having a separate individual existence, like any item. Psychological, emotional, thought, concept, mind, body, environment, person, place, situation. And emptiness is saying it, it, it doesn't have that independent self-existence. It doesn't have in itself that uniqueness. And therefore it is empty. It is emptiness, it's empty of self-existence. And thus, but it appears that way through movement of mind. And so the, the exploration, the Tor, was exp the exploration of form, that form is emptiness. And it's not to say that you and I can say, well, my mind can't do that. My mind must stop doing that. The that is what the mind does. Every time we have a conversation, it appears like this person is separate from everything else, is unique and separate. And the mind sees that way. And the inquiry is not to stop the mind doing that, but to see the mind does that, but it's not the way things are. It's only the way they appear. And that understanding, that real realization, is the revelation of emptiness, and emptiness is fullness, and fullness is everything. And this is deathless. Deathless. <coughs> Why is it preferable to breathe through the nose? <laughs> Does it differ from individual to individual? <laughs> <laughs> um, the way that I look at it in a very simple way is I regard um, the breath as, an op as primarily um, through the nose I regard the mouth primarily to be used for uh, eating and speaking and when we need a little bit more air like um, some of us like uh, jogging and things like that. When we need a little bit more air, then we open the mouth to get a little bit more air in. And since in sitting we generally don't need more uh, air, unless we're really um, um, blocked up, then the preference is for, for breathing through the nose. If I understand you right, you said that one may pick and choose from different techniques depending on what is useful. Yet many spiritual teachers say you must stick to one path to get anywhere. <coughs> they would, wouldn't they? Um, <laughs> you, um, it, this is an ongoing question and an ongoing problem. Here you have, you have the situation. One teacher says to us, 
um, you've got to follow this. You've got to, um, because that's the only <coughs> way you can possibly go deep, is by doing the same thing and again and again. If you change, then basically, you're ju and try this technique and that te technique, um, basically you're in the spiritual supermarket. And a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and it just doesn't lead anywhere. So this is, a, this is one of the messages which um, goes out to us. And then other, another teacher says, no, 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 don't, not necessary to look at it like that, but spiritual life is a life of uh, expansiveness. It's a life of uh, exploration, a life of looking into, into things and listening to oneself and seeing what's useful and appropriate, trusting in that and following that through. It may be one particular, it may be. It may be more than one, whatever is appropriate. So who are you going to listen to? And that's, in a way, what it, you know, really is, what it does come down to. And one might say, if I just may speak um, um, personally here, that <coughs> over the years, through different practices and approaches and traditions and non-traditions, if I look at um, the activity, I mean the spiritual activity, that as far as meditation goes for myself, what it's come down to in a very uh, basic way um, is being with the breathing as a basic primary meditation object. And the other which goes with that is the, um, accompanied by the observation and the inclusion of thought. The, the, the dance of thought, its presence, its absence, its so-called appearance, disappearance or whatever. And, and so though exploring other different ways and means and uh, keeping in touch with those, for myself, those two um, seem to be the, a, a very good foundation which provides me with calm and insight and understanding and uh, um, um, clarity and appreciation. And that, but that may vary quite considerably from one person uh, to another. So in that, whether we follow a particular way or whether uh, we're more eclectic, then this um, we must basically see for ourselves. But hopefully, whatever the way it is, contributing to our being grounded, clear, conscious, caring human beings. If, if whatever the approach we're taking is not contributing to being a conscious and caring human being, and it's just habit, it's just conformity, it's just doing what one is told, then it's useless, useless. Sometimes letting go of fear or pain or thoughts or greed feels like I'm holding onto a bar suspended over water at night. It would be easy to let go, and yet I am terrified of what may be in the water. This fear of the unknown is perhaps fear of freedom. 
and I think it's very <coughs> mm, vital and um, important uh, communication to us here. Here we find ourselves in like, even when something is quite painful and holding on, and we're holding on to that. Sometimes it's relationship, sometimes it's uh, belief, sometimes it's a, a, a particular situation or, or possession or many, many things. And, we're actu and, we, and we, we know we're holding on. And though it's painful for us, it's giving some kind of security. It's giving us some sense of ourselves. It might be in a painful or pleasurable <laughs> way. And we prefer that to letting go and being with the unknown, being with not knowing, and really deeply not knowing. And, and as the person says, one can be quite terrified of what how I will be, or what it will be like to really not know. And we're quite afraid of that. And so much of our activities and our um, involvements and everything in, in can be an avoidance of not knowing, of being with the unknown. And sometimes we you know, ask ourselves and we check with ourselves and we need to be, to be asked, you know, am I willing, really willing to really let go? Really just start all over again and just not know what the day will bring, not know next tomorrow, next week and next month. And, just, and really, you know, start completely afresh. As I've just come into life today and I've got no real reference points and everything is quite unknown. And, and, to, and to live in that feeling, to, li li to, to, to live with that, even though the heart and mind says, you can't live like that, it's not possible to live like that, nobody can live like that. And with all the rationales what, that, which hinder us from that letting go, from that dropping into the water, that dropping into our deeper inner feelings and not knowing what's next. And some, in some way, the methods and the techniques and the, and everything, in a way, is to say it's really okay. We can let go. We can drop in, so to speak. We can drop out of our mind. We can trust in that deep water. William Blake. William Blake is an English poet, and some of us um, love dearly. And Blake's drawings and and poems uh, communicate. He's an 18th-century um, poet, and his poetry communicates, and his drawings communicate everything which we are talking about here. And sometimes in his little cottage where he used to live in um, Sussex in southern England, he had a tiny little little garden and he was always very, um, quite eccentric and he would sit there sometimes 
in the summer, on a summer's afternoon, just naked in, in the garden. And friends would drop in to see him. And in 18th century conservative England, but rather shocked to see this poet and artist just sitting there being with the being with everything and naked in the nakedness of things. And the person here says, quotes, one of his best known, to see a world in a grain of sand and the heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And that is the Buddha's Dharma in poetry. That's the message of the tree. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. The deathless is right here. God is right here. Will there be time and method for written feedback about the course? Or should it be given during individual interview times? And I would say both are quite uh, appropriate, the ongoing process and dynamic of the situation uh, hopefully is such that there is that space as people do and also people also um, drop me a line or leave me a note so that with the retreats and with, with the work um, I personally don't wish it to be stagnant. I don't wish to, with it to keep exactly the same form, the same methodo methodology. Even though I know one can get a form and it works very well, or very well for most people or whatever, but I prefer to explore, to experiment, to get the feedback from people, to make the changes, and to keep it on that kind of footing. And so some people come and they haven't seen, been on a retreat with myself for a year or two or three years, and they come and say, Christopher, it's changed, it's just, it's, it's different than it was before. And some think it's great, I really like it. Others think, oh, it's, you know, I like the old days. And I want that kind of process, that, that we just with what's happening, not using the past. <coughs> as the reference point. Would physical activities such as gardening help concentrate the mind? Um, I have a little garden at home. It's about, um, oh, I said, what would it be? 30 or 40 feet long, maybe? and about 15 feet wide. And um, um, I was hoping to turn it into a tropical rainforest. <laughs> um, partly to avoid um, concentrating my mind on the gardening. And um, 
And then during the, um, I mentioned the elections, during the election, um, one of the, I knocked on a door about three, you have to do a lot of door knocking, it's a dreadful task, um, about three miles away, and the person said to me, uh, oh, Mr. Titmus, um, I'm sorry, I'm definitely not going to vote for the Green Party, um, because my sister lives in your street, and she said that the, the, the weeds <laughs> from your garden keep blowing over into her garden, and she said she feels that you're very ungreen. <laughs> so, rather than lose a vote, I got the lawnmower out. <laughs> um, I think gardening is a, for those who have the privilege and the opportunity, is actually um, a wonderful activity very wonderful activity. And what I found for myself, um, in some activities like uh, gardening and cooking and house cleaning and all those things which um, um, men are very skillful at avoiding, I found that I had to go through um, a lot of resistance in my um, mind and in my thought. and the way the resistance would show itself um, for myself was I've got better things to be doing than this. And this thought would keep interfering. And it went on persist I may say, <coughs> um, persistently for about a year. Because I just, you know, I kept saying, yes, it's wonderful to be gardening, but really I should be writing, doing the correspondence, or whatever it might be. I've got a meeting to go to, I should be doing that, etc, etc. And the resistance level just kept persisting and persisting. I kept thinking, when is this resistance going to go away? And I'm really going to settle into it. And it took about a year to go from resistance to love being with the uh, garden, or getting into the rhythm of cooking as a creative thing and not something just to get some food into the belly as quickly as possible whatever. And I think that many things in life like, like that where we just have a pattern and the pattern hinders that fluid connection and communication. And uh, so, yes, g gardening is liberating. <laughs> What's the difference between Buddhism as a religion and as a philosophy? Is the Buddha worshipped as a god by religious Buddhists? Um, he, um, one has the diversity here with this. I, I assume the person meaning religion means the forms, uh, the rituals, the um, uh, all the differences which give it a religious feeling. And we went over when we went over last night to the um, uh, Bodhi tree over there, Norman pointed out, he said, look at that. And there has been some very big pujas taking place. And um, Carlo Rinpoche, this very elderly uh, Rinpoche, who's in his 80s. And the monks and nuns, they, they sit there, and then there's this the, the, the table. And on the table, there's um, this beautiful red and gold cloth over table or bench, we might call it, um, they are covering up the table. And so it looks very ornate and very, very religious feeling through the, all, the, all the cloth that's surrounded there. 
And all of that was all, when we went over there last night, some of you may notice, all of that was gone. And what was there was just this dirty old wooden table. Um, just there, nobody um, around. And, you know, the table looked like it had been dumped there, you know, about 50 years ago. You see. And that's the difference, that's the difference in Buddhism, you see. We go for the dirty table, <laughs> and others go for the ornate surroundings. And, and both can um, appeal to different um, needs. <laughs> so, and with, with regard to the Buddha worshipped as a god, uh, I mean, to all intents and purposes, I think, yes, frequently. The uh, visualization I mean, is to see the Buddha as the ultimate, as the fulfillment of all um, human aspirations. And in that respect, yes. But a difference would be, whereas Christianity tends to view God as the creator of the world, that God made the world. And Buddhism wouldn't, doesn't um, think in, in that way. And which reminds me, I mentioned, I remember, question answer period of, um, a year or two ago, a piece of graffiti, you know, it's, it's a, when somebody writes something in a, a toilet, which I saw in London, and it, it said, um, God hasn't forgotten the world, but he's now working on less ambitious projects. <laughs> If there is no self, what is it that is aware of breathing, feeling, <coughs> etc., hearing, etc.? Um, the question of self um, is one of the major inquiries in this kind of a work. So, no matter what we do, um, part of it is to guard against making assumptions about self. So, the person says, if there is no self, what is it that is aware of breathing, consciousness, hearing, etc.? And if we put it or formulate into language, which makes differences, and only through the language are differences made, then we say, Consciousness. There is consciousness of breathing. Conscious, which means consciousness, of feeling, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting. And so the, what we're engaged in to some degree is establishing clearly the interdependence of consciousness with its content, consciousness with its object. So we say, right now, there is consciousness, or there is conscious, of listening. There is conscious of speaking, as well as other activities. Now what occurs within that simple event is, we might say, a deeply rooted idea or image, I. And the I concept, the I thought, the I idea arises and, the I, and says, I 
I'm listening. And so the I, as it were, ha is actually a, a simple conceptual device which is referring to something. So it has no self-existence. It, it's apparent in connection. So we say, I am sitting here. Body is sitting. I am listening. I in reference to sound. I am thinking. The I in reference to thinking. So we just see that this I, this me, is not a permanent thing whatsoever, but it appears in relationship to, dependent upon. It has no self-existence. And this awareness of this sees the insubstantiality, the lack of selfness. And this lack, this lack of selfness, is lack of selfness, lack of selfness, lack of selfness, lack of selfness, lack of selfness. And if there is lack of selfness, where is birth and death? Would you comment on a meditative relationship? That is, two people, partners, and meditative parenting or family life, perhaps from your experience. <coughs> um, I should warn you, to be fair, and I'm definitely speaking from experience here, that the track record of Dharma relationships is not very good at all. <laughs> and there are many reasons for this. And, and sometimes some in the Dharma world, in the world of meditation, sometimes some people's <laughs> first real experience of impermanence <laughs> <laughs> comes in the relationship, which is a definite shock to the system. So, and there are many factors which contribute to this. Um, one which I um, notice, both myself and with um, other, other, other people, is that changes may be going on within one, within one partner or the, or the other, which means that there is a necessity to step out of the relationship. And it may not necessarily be that the, the people don't like each other or there's conflicts and um, tension, but for some it's just necessary part of the process. And in this um, respect, on um, where the relationship is um, personal and intimate of opposite gender, um, I think something it's something like and this is socially reflected too, not just in the spiritual sense. Something like um, seven to eight of relationships which ends the, these days. One might say the, initiate, the initiative for this is the woman. And, it's, and the impact of this, I think, um, on um, us as um, men is, I think, very important. And it can be perceived, and, and it's ext um, extremely difficult, but one can 
perceive it in fresh ways is also for us as men very, very important. Because I feel with us as men, we only applies to women, but characteristically of us, is that certain kind of formations of desire, like the desire to have, or the desire to control, the desire to be in charge of, in some mode, um, is something which we need to constantly be examining and re-examining and re-examining. I mean, many, plenty of men say, oh, I, I'm not macho. No. There's no, there's no Rambo in me, you know, whatever. <laughs> and incidentally, Henrietta was just telling me, she must read in the paper, I must tell you this. That chap, um, Mr. Uh, Stallone, Silvestro, or whatever his name is, Stallone, he's making a film at the <laughs> right at the present time. Now, can you imagine? This is the film, the storyline. <laughs> the guy is in Thailand living in a Buddhist, and he's gone there to film this. <laughs> you know, you know. He's, in, he's, he's gone up with the film crew to northern Thailand and he's living in a Buddhist monastery practicing meditation. This is how the film starts off. This is Rambo, Rambo 3 or whatever. <laughs> and then he gets a message that his best friend is in Afghanistan and has been captured by those horrible Russians. <laughs> and he feels it's his duty to go and rescue his friend. So he leaves his meditation. <laughs> and he goes off with his machine gun and his machete. <laughs> question. <laughs> right. So in relationships and in communication, that the changes which are taking place, we do frequently have the view that an end of a relationship, a personal relationship, is a sign of failure. And we're conditioned in, into that mode. It's a, it's a, it's a failure. And it doesn't have to be seen and interpreted in that way. It may be painful and quite appropriate. And what one of the things which one does find, which I think is very lovely and uh, very, very healthy, is that people with um, spiritual work and dharma work may go through relationship. It may end and can be painful, and sometimes when the children are involved, terribly painful. And yet there's a kind of coming through in which the relationship then takes a completely new form. It's made the transition from intimacy to really close, good friendship. And a real appreciation of the other person, and if the other person is in a new relationship, real, a real genuine appreciation of, of that, of the person's independence, if that is what they have chosen. Rather than the relationship ends, and there's nothing but bad feeling, and then whenever the thought, or one speaks about the old partner, one is just bad-mouthing that person. I think in spiritual relationships, dharma relationships, those kind of healthy changes are taking place. And within the relationship, the personal relationship, 
Um, um, one of the things which is happening which is so valuable is that there is a real lot of support taking place. Some friends, like in the States and England and elsewhere, um, will go and, and the partner will sit for a three-month retreat, as an example, and the other partner feels really pleased and grateful to get him out of the house or whatever it might be. But there's a real... and other people are sitting and spending time together, working on projects together, and there's a lot of fresh exploration in which the relationship in, includes um, friendships and, uh, and connectedness. And there's still a lot of pain and there's still a lot of work, as we all know, in terms of relating and relationships. I've been told by a Goenka student that Goenka is one of the um, teachers in uh, India. He's Indian, but uh, from Burma, and has a large centre in um, Igatpuri. Some of you have been there. And he's um, well um, known on the scene for um, um, just um, sitting meditation using... Um, breathing, concentrating on the tip of the nose, and what is called the sweeping technique, which is uh, systematically and persistently moving the attention down through the body, up and down through the body. Um, I've been told by a Goenka student that pranayama, which is changing the breathing, is not so good if you practice vipassana meditation. What do you think about it? And in a way... The question is like the previous question. You see, I personally, having um, studied uh, yoga and um, pranayama and many years with um, breathing meditation, I personally don't find any conflict or difficulty integrating or working with them both. Pranayama has somewhat different purposes to it, and therefore the motives are different. Generally, towards um, getting the energies flowing more freely, towards um, purifying and clearing the system. And for working with pranayama, of course, and as well as with med uh, meditation and so forth, the tradition, and I think the Indian tradition, <coughs> emphasizes this, and I think the, the Buddhists really are, 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 in many respects, very short-sighted. And I think the lack of awareness in, in Buddhism sometimes is unparalleled. And one of the shortages of awareness is the importance which in Hindu tradition they recognize. One is of yoga.